The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Always feel a little like an alien wearing this thing. <coughs> oh, good evening. Welcome to Insight Meditation Center of Redwood City, or Mid-Peninsula, or not sure what it's called. Um, I was looking for my talk from last week on the website today, but I didn't find it. <laughs> I thought maybe I could figure out, find out what I had said. Right, well, it goes through, <laughs> it goes through an editor that yeah, kind of that's right. So. Yeah, that's wise. <laughs> it needed an edit. Needs an editor. Uh, um, so uh, this week we will uh, explore mostly step three. I kind of talk a little bit about the arc of step one, two, two, three, kind of that uh, movement. But we will begin with sitting meditation, and um, so. Let's just go ahead and do that, and and um, we can guess that maybe some people will arrive while we're sitting. So um, the good thing about that is that they won't interrupt my talk because we'll be sitting. It's the good part for me. Um, and uh, so just to uh, you know, it's not a big deal, but I just, uh, you know, there's a tendency to think of noises, particularly noises that take place in the room that you're meditating, as distractions. And, um, you know, w- one of the great things about Vipassana meditation is that uh, potentially nothing is a distraction. We can just use it as a something to, re- you know, wake us up. It can be just a moment of hearing, or it can... It get us often a noise gets me out of my thinking, so often it's a wake it's a mindfulness bell. Um, we can also actually use when hearing someone coming in late is an opportunity for compassion, because you know how it is when you're late, especially when you're late for meditation. You know, there's this inherent tension and conflict in that. You know, you're driving, you're going, oh, I shouldn't be. I'm trying to get meditation, I shouldn't be worried. And the discomfort of showing up and then feeling self-conscious because you're making noise and everybody's so silent and they're meditating and you're disturbing that. So, you know, you can use it as an opportunity to uh, extend some compassion to the person who has probably been rushing across town or stuck in traffic. Hopefully somebody will show up late now after all that. (laughs) Uh, We've got a setup for you. Oh. The sound recorder will be here in about five minutes. Oh, perfect. Thank you. Yes. So, um, I'll begin by ringing the bell, because that's a nice sound to start with.
or entering into the realm of your senses. Sound, body sensations. When the eyes are closed and we're not eating, those are the main senses that we are aware of. So you've arrived now. Here you are. And who are you right now? Not in any grand sense, but just what's going on in your mind and body right now. Because that's who you are right now. And just recognizing the energy that you come with this evening, the physical energy at the end of a work day, perhaps, the emotional energy, the mood, the feeling tone. Do you feel comfortable here at this Buddhist meditation center? Some of you, it's a familiar place. For others, it may be relatively new. So what's your relationship to just being here in this place? Perhaps you're sitting with friends or perhaps you're with strangers. How does that feel? Just exploring these feelings is one way of situating yourself in this moment. Seeing that there are many of inputs coming to you right now. There are always a lot of things influencing the way we feel and the way we're thinking in any moment. To uncover them. To see that there's nothing solid or inevitable about the way this present moment is the result of conditions which are even now in the process of changing. And yet we so often 
latch on to some particular condition, some thought or some emotion or some physical sensation or some sense impression. We lock on to that one small element of our experience and then try to do something with it. We try to change it or we try to hold on to it, try to fix it, try to figure it out, try to think it away. If I think about this emotion enough, I can make it go away. And of course you don't. You just feed it by thinking about it. So if we can just be very clear about what is. What is true in this moment. Not trying to do anything about it. then we might be able to find some peace. So with that sense of who you are right now, as a kind of background, begin to pay attention to your breath in the foreground. Feel the sensation of breathing in and the sensation of breathing out. This kind of focus naturally calms us, naturally helps us to let go of any tension, striving, calculating. Helps us to just stay in this moment, in this body.
whenever the mind wanders, whenever you find yourself lost in thought, just acknowledge that. And gently come back to the breath, back into the body. If there are thoughts in the background while you're still feeling the breath, just let them pass through. You don't have to note them or acknowledge them. If you find yourself lost in thought, then it's more helpful make a conscious acknowledgement or a noting of the thought. Before you come back to the breath. If there's a particularly stubborn or troubling thought that doesn't want to let go or that keeps coming up, it can be helpful to go towards the emotion that's driving that thought. See if you can feel in the solar plexus, the chest, the belly, or anywhere in the body where that emotion that's fueling the thought is residing in the body. Oftentimes the thought is just a symptom of an emotion. At other times, the thought is the trigger for the emotion. And even then, resting in the visceral experience of the emotion can help you to let go or to at least settle and become grounded within the energy of that thought or that emotion.
And then if you find yourself lost or losing balance, making it simple again by just coming back to the breath. Always a trustworthy anchor.
Stay with it. Just (coughs) gently coming back. Even when it seems like you're losing steam. Whatever becomes dominant can be your focus, even if it's unpleasant. Don't be afraid to be present or to feel your own experience.
It'd be great if you people could come in. So, um, if you you can bring your chairs. There's really if you guys would move up a little bit, we can put some chairs up in the front or wherever, somewhere, make room for our friends. I'm always interested if there are uh, questions about practice um, after sitting, or maybe all the questions were answered during the sitting. Yes. Oh, we should use the microphone probably. Do we have the sound going? Ah. You're not Jim. No, Jim is getting next to chairs. Great. Uh, this woman here wants it. Thank you. had a question because I had a my son had a tragic accident last Tuesday after I had gotten home and I can't get these images how, how tragic is he okay uh, he ran, he's okay now um, okay he could have died okay he ran into a barbed wire fence and oh. almost took off his nose and just almost got his eye wow um, we're talking a plastic surgeon had to come in and put his face back wow. together. How old is he? Nineteen. Okay. Well. So I just have had a hard time letting go, and he's handling it well. <laughs> <laughs> Nineteen, hey. And uh, I just um, having a hard time concentrating at work, meditation. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm trying to meditate around it, and I just. I'm just having a hard time with it. As well you should. I mean, if you weren't freaked out, <laughs> I'd suggest you go see somebody, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, just, just I, all I can say is give yourself compassion. Love, it's the most frightening, devastating thing for a parent is for a child to be hurt. So, uh, it's just so natural. I I wouldn't expect to be able to meditate around it, you know, really only... uh, And and I'm sure it's challenging even even to sit down and and try to be quiet, because, you know, that's when all the stuff comes. So, if you're choosing to do that, uh, you know, to really uh, do that uh, with the full expectation of the arrival of that energy and those fears and the, that, uh, all that feelings that come up. And, and just, if you, if you can, just try to breathe and open yourself to that and let it move through. Um, it's, it's a kind of grieving, you know. And, and there's... Uh, no meditating around grief, you know. You can run away from it other ways, but meditation is not a way to get away from it. It's a way to go through it. Um, but yeah, I would, st- as much as you can, stay in your heart, you know. Yeah. 
Thank you, and I really wish him well. Yeah. Are there easier questions? Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's someone in the back. It's the so they record they record the questions for yeah, yeah so now you're on the spot testing one two yeah good it works um, I have a question about pain in the physical body and how you transcend the pain during you don't. meditation you don't this is not transcendental meditation sorry I didn't mean to snap at you um, so and and it's a, it's a it's a really normal question and I and. I didn't mean to jump in there. Uh, well, I guess I meant to because I did, but um, I'm apologizing for being so short with you. So how to work with the pain. So can you tell me what's going on at all with your, with your body? Where are you feeling pain? And um, you don't have to. I mean, my ankles. Oh, that's it? I thought no, it was some but private place you didn't want to mention. Okay, um, so it doesn't my matter. My ankles are the big uh, pain right now. And is that, a, is that a place where you commonly have pain? No. Okay, that's good. Because um, it's easier to work with meditation pain, meditative pain, than it is with chronic pain. Um, so the body doesn't really like to sit still. Uh, it likes to move. Uh, in fact, you know, sitting, you know, being in one position is one of the things that the CIA uses for torture, right? You know, stress positions. Um, and any position is stressful if you don't move after a while. So it's, so it's somewhat inevitable that you're going to have some physical discomfort if you meditate long enough. So um, in this practice, mindfulness meditation, vipassana meditation, we really, as much as possible, want to work with opening to and experiencing the sensations very clearly. And um, so uh, there are different ways to approach the sensation, but I'll, so I'll give you kind of my version, uh, which is that... Um, you begin by, when, there, when you become aware that there's a pain and it's uncomfortable, try not to move right away. Take a deep breath and relax. Try to, try to just release tension around the pain. And then take your attention right to it, if you can. So approaching gently, but very, in a very you know, direct way. So, because there's a natural tendency to avoid pain, and particularly for addicts, this is an issue. Um, and so we've never really, most of us have never really been fully aware of what pain feels like. We just know we don't like it, so we, get, we try to shut it out. So this is an opportunity to actually open up a part of your life that you've probably never been in, or had been in not very much. Um, so we take ourselves and start to explore it with a kind of inquisitive mind, a scientific you know, approach, if you will, that's 
kind of, what is this? What does it feel like? Let me see if I can locate where, where is it? Um, so one of the things we see right away is that uh, sensations in the body are, aren't static. They're moving all the time. So what we often think of as something solid, we discover very quickly is not solid. Um, one of the traditional Buddhist approach to sensations is to identify them with the qualities of the four traditional, the four sort of classic elements of earth, air, fire, and water. So water's one you probably won't feel in your ankle, but earth would be like the heaviness, if there's a heaviness or a denseness uh, or a pressure. Uh, fire would be heat, and fire is the sensation that's probably most common with, with pain. Uh, it could be cold or, or heat. Uh, so the fire element is just the temperature. And then the air element is the movement or pulsing. So you might feel a pulse there, or you might feel tingling or energy kind of radiating out. Um, so they, the suggestion is to start to note uh, different sensations like tingling, heat, pressure, or whatever is, is happening there. Um, just again, as a way of just sort of objectifying the experience somewhat. So we're kind of stepping back from it. In, in, in one way, we're stepping back with this objective view, but in another way, we're moving towards it in the sense of really seeing what it's like. So this might seem like uh, not a particularly uh, pleasant uh, thing to do, but as I say, it's really directly associated with addiction because addiction is an avoidance of pain. It's, there's basically two you know, sort of drives behind addiction. There's the avoidance of pain and there's the seeking for, to ple- for pleasure. And, and so when we learn to actually be with pain, we are strengthening, I would say, our ability to be with our addictive, cra- you know, be with and not act on our addictive cravings. From a meditative standpoint, there are some other great values to exploring sensations in this way. Uh, one of them is that it focuses the mind and gives a very strong concentration object. So when you're trying to follow the breath, this kind of subtle, vague sensation in the body, it's very easy to drift off. And you drift off and you don't really know it because you just get lost in thought. If you're paying attention to a sensation, it can really hold your attention. And as you, if you relax into it, and if you can release the emotional aversion to the experience, you can move into a neutral experience of the pain where it's not any longer pain, where it's just sensation. And this is quite remarkable, a remarkable experience and really valuable experience. Uh, to see that what we call unpleasant or painful is not necessarily that way. It de- that, that depiction depends on our labeling it as such. When we take away the label unpleasant or painful 
and just experience it as pure sensation, it stops being unpleasant and painful. So that is like a very powerful insight and, and, quite, and can really have a uh, deep effect on our lives and the way we engage our lives and the way we engage our bodies as we're aging particularly. Um, finally, that kind of attention, when the mind wanders, if you get to that place of neutrality, of kind of balance where you're not reacting to it and it's not unpleasant, as soon as the mind wanders, the unpleasant will arise because you're no longer being mindful. And so you get a very, very quick feedback that the mind has wandered. Whereas when your mind wanders from the breath, you often don't get any feedback until you just kind of snap out of it. So this is a powerful way to stay in the present moment. And what happens is that concentration deepens tremendously. And for many people, this is a gateway into the deeper concentration experiences, which is, you know, not probably good news for most people. Oh, I can get concentrated by having a lot of pain in my body. Great. Thank you for sharing that. You know, but it's true. <laughs> you know, and, and it really, in the larger sense of suffering, Suffering it is the gateway into wisdom and into letting go. Because suffering is, the, is, in most cases, the signal that something's going on that we need to pay attention to and usually that we want to change. In this case, it just works as this tremendous object of attention. Um, so there's all of that. And there's the moment when you say, okay, this is enough. When you say, I need to move my foot or my leg or my back. I need to stretch or I need to stand up or I need to lie down or I need to take uh, an ibuprofen, you know, whatever, uh, you know, whatever's, you know, you don't, you, we're not here to torture ourselves and there are limits and, uh, you know, you have to, you know, we play with that a little bit. But it's, it's a common misconception that pain is a, is a uh, problem in meditation. But if we approach it in this way, we, it actually becomes a challenge which is really an opportunity. Um, and as I say, it, if you work with it sincerely, I think you will find that uh, some really significant changes. Um, I don't know if I'll, I'll give you my my salsa um, comparison here. This will, and uh, to talk, when we t- when I talk about pain as being a relative thing, so I, one, one way we can see that pain is relative is that when there's an unpleasant sensation, it might be mild. And then it gets to a certain point when we say, ouch, or that hurts now, or that's pain. And before that, we wouldn't call it pain. We would just say it's like, oh, it's kind of, you know, it's unpleasant. So we can see that there's sort of gradations. And we know that depending on our mood or how tired we are, we might be more or less susceptible to that and more reactive to it. But another way to talk about uh, 
the relativity of pain is that if you find spicy foods to be enjoyable, and many people do, you, know, you like to eat something, I'll really pour on the salsa, that's really hot, ah, love that, delicious. If you had that sensation in your ankle, or your knee, or your back, you would say, ouch, I'm in pain, right? I mean, you know, it burns, I'm being, ow, you know, oh, I burned my knee. In your mouth, yum, and your knee, ouch. So obviously, pain is not an absolute. It's a relative thing. It depends on where you're feeling it. I think this is an, a grown-up enough audience for me to say that what would it feel like if you were having an orgasm in your ear? <laughs> You'd call the doctor. You'd be like, there's something wrong with me. This is really awful. It's like freaky, you know. You know but that's supposed to be the most pleasure. But, you know... If, if it's in the wrong place, you're, you're freaking out. So it's all relative. You know? And uh, so to you know, just play with that a little bit. And if you do have an orgasm in your ear, I, I recommend you do call your doctor. Actually. <laughs> Don't call me because I can't help. And thank you for asking that question because it's... I might have just placed you in the audience because I always need somebody to ask that question. You can tell I have a lengthy, canned response to it. Well, um, I, I wanted to ask you whether anybody did the homework. Did, or did your dog eat the homework? Yeah. Did anybody, anybody watch Obama's uh, press, the, the Washington Press Corps speech? When he came out, I thought he was going to say that his dog ate his, his speech, but anyway, he didn't. He didn't. So never mind. Uh, yes. Did you? Did you? Would you like to tell us what the homework was like? Did it work for you? Was it at all? There you go. Got it. Thank you. Well, I just started going back and, and included all kinds of things that might that I might call spiritual uh, okay. uh, in the history. Uh, and a number of them were just experiences that I found uh, were very impressive and moved me along like, uh, gee, I'm, I'm competent to uh -huh. do that. Huh. Or um, I hated that mm -hmm. kind of things. And, and clear back to age five even, I find some of them that were, that were going on like that. But later on, uh, I was introduced to a, a couple who were spiritual, and, and I was a very small kid in their group, so I used to share about what I prayed for. And I, and I prayed, I lost the tennis ball, and I prayed for it, and I found it. Uh -huh. Prayer works. Uh -huh. And at wow. that age, I mean, that was a conviction. Yeah. And then I wanted a particular gadget for Christmas, and it showed up, and wow. my parents couldn't afford that. Wow. And Santa Claus is real. But these kinds of things, very basic, came up. Yeah. And then finally, so I got into prayer a lot, but finally in college, uh, all kinds of other uh, hormones were coming up, and I just decided, like, God, I can't take you right now. I'm not denying you, but I'm going to postpone it. I'll, I'll come back maybe later on, but I've got to try it on my own. And so that was encouraging. Up until um, my wife's brother was in Korea, and he came down. He was shot down, and he was in a prison camp. And so I said, okay, I'm coming back. <laughs> hmm. You know, so it was that kind of thing. 
No so, atheists in foxholes, as they say. Well, he was in a prison camp. I know, I was just... Yeah. But anyway, so it's those kinds of things. Uh, and then we studied um, the teaching of Jesus intensely uh, for two weeks at a seminar. Hmm. And not, not the resurrection, not the... <laughs> not the Christology or all the rest of it, yeah. what was he trying to teach? Because apparently he thought he was a teacher. Yeah. And um, that was beautiful. I bet. To me, that was just like another degree in college or something, just to, uh, in relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a search. It's been a, a wonderful opening. Uh, right now, studying Buddhism, we don't you know, talk a lot about God. I came up with a definition, I think of it recently, that I would say to somebody that I think I would have to define God now as whatever that wonderful power out there that invented, um, no, then I forgot the word. This happens in this age. Really? No. Oh, oh shoot. She, she. Evolution. Oh, yeah. Whatever, that God is whatever that wonderful power is that invented evolution. You know, and the and the species and all that, mm-hmm. which is beautiful. So, um, and invented this whole thing that we're in. So, those are some of the some of the things I had, and I'm not sure what else you ex- wanted us to do with no. that. But that was just kind That's of great. A, That's a sharp perfect. Catalog. You get an A. <laughs> um, yeah, I th- you know, I think there's, and when I kind of made up this exercise, it was mostly with the idea of helping people to get over their opinions, kind of, and to kind of see that if their opinions were getting in the way of doing the steps, basically. So if you were having trouble dealing with the word higher power, to see why you were, deal- why you were having that trouble and to kind of deconstruct that. But as I've worked with it more, and particularly hearing a story like that, to me there's this kind of a sweetness about looking back at our lives in this way and, and seeing all the things that have inspired us and guided us. Um, it, it's, it's one of those things we probably don't do very often, reflect on that. Um, there's a t- tendency, well, I, I don't know what, everybody has their own tendencies. I mean, my tendency is to think about all the bad things that have happened to me in my life, you know. Uh, but, um, so, so I hope that was enjoyable for people or, you know, inspiring or, or useful in some way. Any, any other comments about it? For the pe- people who looked at that, looked at their spiritual history? Yes, back there. Um, I've, I found it an interesting exercise because I've kind of evolved over the course of my life. I hope in so. In my uh, 20s, well, I was raised a Protestant in Presbyterian Lutheran churches back in the Midwest. But when in my 20s I really became, and I was in college, I was really an agnostic. I just thought, there's nothing out there. These people, they want something to be there. Just because they want something to be there, it isn't. We're put here on earth, and then we die, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And and I, I really thought that up into my 30s. But then um, I heard people... Pre- pre- Family, friends, I read about the near-death experiences. All kinds of things were happening that were very spiritual. And I thought, wow. 
these people aren't lying. There's something there, something out there. So then I began to think, well, okay, there's something out there. And I, uh, but I, I couldn't really get the concept of, of God because of, I don't like the idea of God the Father and I'm the child. I'm, yeah. um, I have a difficulty with that. But um, I could at least accept that there, I, that there really was something there, that people were having these experiences all over the world. I had a doctor once talk to me about, he had a heart attack and, and, and went through a near-death experience, and he told me all about it. And he said, you know, I'm not afraid anymore, and it's really not that bad. Hmm. And I thought, and, um, and then I, as I've gotten older in the past four or five years, you experience family members dying and how they go through the process and, and um, my parents dying. And... Um, uh, that also kind of led me to the fact that, you know, there is something, we make a transition and into something, I don't know what. And then I, I began, to, I like, I'm very comfortable with the idea of a higher power, I call it that. Uh, and that's kind of evolved for me too in the past few years. So now, more recently, at least I, I've gone from, okay, I recognize there's something out there, to finally, now I... I'm learning to develop a personal connection with it. It never really occurred to me that it was there, hmm. that something I could talk to, that there would be somebody there to help me. Um, and I'm finding that very reassuring, <laughs> and it's kind of um, uh, an eye-opener for me. So at my age, um, I've really changed my thinking a lot as I've you know, gone, gone through life. Yeah. So. Thank you. Well, uh, let's take a, a few minutes to stretch and to just take a little break. You can greet each other and I'll ring a bell in a few minutes and uh, talk about more about God. Woohoo! Right, so before we... Uh, launch into the second part of this evening. I wanted to mention something. I know some of you may be new to the Insight Meditation Center. Um, we operate uh, on the Dana system. We consider the teachings of the Buddha priceless, so we don't put a price on them, and we offer, all of the teachings are offered freely. The teachers. It's different from free. <laughs> what? It's different from free. They're offered freely, but not free. Oh. Does that make sense? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, sorry, the, I threw okay. you off there. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we don't require that you pay anything for right. the uh, teachings. Right. Uh, but the, this, both the center and the teacher um, uh, uh, depend on the, the giving um, to support the 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 center and the um, the the teaching, so there are two Donna boxes out by the front door. There are two uh, two slots, one for the teacher and one for the operations of the center. And if you feel inspired to give, um, that would be a good way to do it. So thank you. Great. Thanks, Jim. Uh, I also um, brought along um, some book or reading suggestions tonight. Um, and this is, there's some, actually some websites on the bottom that I'm not sure if they're all 
uh, still good. Um, probably most of them are. Um, I also have something for the skeptics in the group. The end of faith is on here. But uh, most of this is uh, either, well, there's the classic 12-step stuff and the, the few books on Buddhism and recovery and then uh, some Buddhist books. So oh, would you mind just like passing some of those out? Uh, there's, I made 50s, uh, anticipating that either some people wouldn't want them or need them or that uh, there wouldn't be as many people here this week. Um, so we'll see if I was right on at least one of those ca- accounts. Um, so while he's uh, offering those, um, I'll talk a little bit about, uh, as I said, I would talk first uh, very briefly about the kind of arc of steps one, two, and three. And in my book, I call this, these first three steps the surrender steps. So the first step is kind of surrendering to our addiction and our disease and our inability to handle it, control it. And then um, steps two and three are kind of surrendering to this uh, higher power. So the, you know, the way the steps are designed, we're kind of, uh, in the first step, we're told that we as individuals don't have power and therefore uh, we're going to need some other power. So it's kind of a, the, the higher power that's suggested is kind of a replacement for our own uh, personal uh, control. Um, I talked some about step two last week, didn't didn't I? Yes, no. Some people say yes. Some people. I think I did. I'm going to vote that I did. Well, all right. I'll talk a little bit about it. I'll compromise. The step two says uh, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot that can be said about each of these steps. So I'm, I'm not uh, doing a thorough uh, analysis of them right now. I did my best in my book, and now I'm writing another book, or now I'm publishing another book in which I continue to try to do my best. Um, one of the things that... Uh, is interesting to note, uh, and one of, the, one of the ways to look at uh, our relationship to our drug of choice or our behavior of choice was to see that as uh, what, we, what was our higher power before. So drugs and alcohol, for me, were my gods. You know, they were the things that I relied on, the things that I depended on to take care of me, to make me feel okay, to make me even feel safe. Uh, if I wasn't high... You know, I would feel, I would kind of be scared. Um, so, so there's a, so for those who kind of object to the idea of like, well, I want to be in control of my life. You know, I don't want to turn it over to some, some higher power. To recognize that you probably were already doing that, um, you already were turning it over. Um, This idea of uh, 
of being restored to sanity, again, is one of the phrases that people can kind of object to. It's like, well, I wasn't crazy. I was just drinking a lot, you know. And that, that may be true. Uh, you know, the, I like the kind of Buddhist idea of, of uh, delusion and living in delusion. And so thinking that um, you can create happiness by ingesting chemicals on a regular basis is delusion. Thinking that you can hold on to an experience, that you can stay high all the time, is a delusion. Thinking that you can avoid suffering and not experience pain is delusion or insanity, not clinical insanity. Um, so, so in Buddhist terms, not seeing the truth of the Dharma is delusion. So I, I like to think of, of that definition or that understanding when I say, I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, that by coming into harmony with the Dharma, that I'm coming out of delusion, coming into wisdom. So, step two also is saying that we came to believe that something could help us, something could heal us. And again, just a, a, lot, of, a lot of the things that I say about these steps are my responses to the uh, objections that I've heard over time to them or that I've imagined or that I've had. So, in a way, a lot of my discussion is like an argument in the in the sort of legal sense of an argument. I'm not going to yell at you. Are you yes? What do I mind? Uh, I'm, you know, I, I prefer to kind of give you my thing and then talk, uh, take questions and comments after, if that's okay. If there's something that's really burning that you feel really needs to be interjected, um, you know, I won't jump up and put my hand over your mouth. But um, is there something really coming up for you that? There was um, there was just something that I was thinking about. I, um, I You're not supposed to be thinking when I'm talking. Oh, okay. That's acceptable then. I realized um, as I was listening that I was listening to all of us speak, and it was babble. Uh huh. But I. Instead of not being part of the babble, even though I was quiet, I realized I was 100% part of it. Mm. Because what I'm really coming to is that I think it's delusional that we think that we're separate, that we really are connected. And that is the delusion that I keep on coming back to, that the higher power is actually we stand on the outside and look at this whole thing as thinking we're a separate snippet. Mm -hmm. And we use language to put ourselves in boxes and communicate. And in our babble, it's a way to remove each other from each other, even though as we use it to communicate. Uh So I keep coming back to this thing that this delusional thing is thinking that I'm separate when I'm actually part of the whole thing. Yeah, and that's the, you know, I left that one out when I was describing delusions just because that is a more subtle and, tricky one to talk about and I will talk about it uh, 
as the weeks and perhaps as the evening goes on. I, I, I'm not sure I would agree with your... Uh, if, if I'm hearing you right, that I, mean, I think that oftentimes small talk is our way of connecting you know, when there's nothing big to talk about, but we want to feel together. You know? And so it might not, I don't know if that, you were, you were sort of saying... Yeah, right, right. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's what language is. It's 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 creating definitions of things that actually don't have definitions. I mean, but I will talk about that that idea of of separateness as as part of higher power. Absolutely. Um, first, I want to talk a little bit about uh, faith uh, because it's this is also an impediment to these steps. Um, and, and I think people often come to Buddhism with the idea that there's no, you don't have to believe in anything, which is fair enough, you, you can say that. Um, but actually in the, teaching, in the Buddhist teachings, the idea of faith is, is quite important and it's considered one of the spiritual powers. Uh, although in Buddhism, this isn't kind of blind faith or... Um, faith in anything uh, supernatural, um, it's m- perhaps better defined as trust or confidence in the path and in ourselves, and um, our own ability to uh, fulfill the path. And, and indeed, t- traditional and faith in the Buddha or the, 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 in the teacher, pardon? Yes, that, that as well. Um, so when people kind of say, well, I don't have any faith, and I, you know, I'll run into this in treatment centers. Um, you know, pe- people who are like, well, I've been through the steps, I just can't believe, you know, I just don't believe in a higher power in God. And, I'm like, and I often will say to them, well, here you are in this treatment center, so either you like to just waste your money or you have some trust that there's something here that can help you, that these people might be able to restore you to sanity you know, in this treatment center. So right there, you've kind of turned your life over. Or you've, you know, you've turned this 30 days over and probably you know, multiple thousands of dollars. So you're, you're sort of turning yourself over to, the, to this process. And the same is true when we come into a program. Might not believe in God, but... And you, and you might have a lot of skepticism, but you're in your chair, you know. Or you came into the Buddhist center, and you don't really know if meditation works, but you came here, you know, with some, there's some seed of faith, and that's all you need. You bring the seed, and we will germinate it here. You know, and the same is true of program or treatment and many, many healing modalities. I learned that word from professional people. <laughs> so if we have that seed, that's really all we need to get started. We come in, we sit down, we listen to the meditation instructions, or we come in and we show up at a meeting and we listen to someone share, and something starts to grow if we keep our hearts and our ears and our minds open. 
So if we think of faith as a developmental process, not as one that we either have it or we don't have it. We just have that seed and we can keep showing up, right? Um, it grows. And um, faith will grow traditionally through practice or working a program, doing a practice, through study, through um, reading or um, you know, exploring the teachings, reading the big book, reading the Dharma books, through community, through seeing others as they develop, seeing that others are ahead of us when there's an inspiring teacher or a sponsor that uh, we, it gives us confidence. Wow, that person has 60 days. How did they get, how did they stay sober for 60 days? You know that feeling when you first get sober? It's just a miracle that anybody could, um, you know, work a program for that long. So uh, just to put out that uh, this, uh, again, this, this development of faith or coming to believe is a dynamic process that doesn't have to be completed all at once. And that it's, it's in process and sometimes it will grow and sometimes it will shrink. Right? Sometimes we lose faith. Um, so let me speak um, specifically about step three, and I'm going to talk about the form of step three, or the, the language of step three, and then I'm going to talk about some specific ways that I understand higher power from a Buddhist perspective. So step three says, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And um, I accept all of that language except for the last word. I, I now say, as, I, as we understood it, um, or they, but that sounds confusing, so it works well. And, and it's interesting what happens just cognitively when you hear the step that way. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood it. Isn't that sort of like, isn't it a little jarring to hear that? It's a good, it's almost like a koan. It's like an answer to a conflict. Something can kind of fry in there in a good way. So just to take apart the step, making a decision is a, in itself is progress for somebody who is used to being driven purely by craving, purely by aversion, purely by impulse. You know, you you don't make decisions when you wake up in the morning, roll out of bed, grab a bottle or grab a joint, you know, st start screaming at your neighbor or fighting with your partner. And, you know, it's all just react reaction. It's all just impulse. We're not, we're not making decisions. M making a decision implies some thought, some care, some intelligence none of which are usually associated with addiction. So just making a decision is progress. doesn't matter what the decision is. Well, I exaggerate. Turning our will and our lives over, this is kind of the key phrase in the step, I'd say. Uh, in Buddhist terms, we can sort of correlate the word will with intention. And Buddha said that intention at one point he says, intention is karma. And the way that's understood is that 
It's our motivation behind our action which determines the outcome of, of, an, of the action. So if you give generously to someone, there's one outcome, which is that you feel good. If you give stingily, it could be the same amount of money, there's another outcome. You feel contracted. It's the same action, but the intention is different. You know, the uh, classic example is, you know, if a surgeon cuts open your chest to perform heart surgery, that's healing. If, you know, uh, a criminal cuts you open, that's trying to kill you. Completely different motivations, completely different result uh, of that action. Uh, and, And this is something for your contemplation. I'm not quite so... I mean, I want to convince you because I'm making an argument, but I'm more interested in inspiring you to go, wow, is that true? How does my intention influence my, the results of my actions? Let me start to watch that. So watching intention is, is a critical part of mindfulness. And, and one of my objections to the whole mindfulness movement, which we seem to be in right now, kind of hoping it will pass, um, is that it's like trying to extract, if, it's like extracting vitamin C from an orange and putting it in a pill and saying, okay, now you don't need the orange. You know, taking mindfulness out of the Dharma and saying, oh, well, we don't need the rest of that. That's Buddhism. And we don't want to be Buddhists. We just want mindfulness. It doesn't really work. You know, um, be like trying to just work one step. So, right intention is an equal partner to right mindfulness in the Eightfold Path, as is right concentration, right effort, and a bunch of other rights. So, So, exploring intention is a vital part of this practice in this path. So, turning our will and our lives... Our lives, in the most obvious way, are our actions. So if, we are, if we're turning our will over to a higher power, that, and we're, we're corresponding that with right intention, that means we're going to start to try to live like a Buddha, or we're going to try to follow the Eightfold Path, or we're going to try to live in a moral way, however you want to characterize it. You're going to not follow your addictive impulse, you know, you're going to try to let go of that motivation, the motivation to just take care of me, me, and feed my, ple- my pleasure craving. I'm going to try to let go of that and turn towards trying to live morally, compassionately, wisely. That's a big shift. And it's why, and it's not our, our natural impulse. I don't think it's the natural impulse for any human being much less an addict. So it really is a turning over. Turning our lives over means that we don't just have that intention, but we actually try to do it. Now, if we look at the Eightfold Path again, the, the central element of our lives, of our, the actions of our lives, is called right action, which is the five precepts, which is the Buddha's framework for morality. 
And it's very similar to other religions' framework for morality, not to kill, not to steal, not to harm with our sexuality, not to harm with speech, not to lie, and not to use intoxicants or to, to the point of heedlessness. So if we simply do that, if we try to live morally and we follow those precepts, you'll find, and this is another thing for your exploration for yourself, you'll find that your life changes completely. Following one precept, you know, pick one. You know. uh, good one is the morality or the speech precept. Try you know, saying only what's true and what's helpful at the right time. And good luck with that. So, <laughs> but try, keep trying. Um, but we, we know how powerful just one precept is because presumably if you're in recovery, you're following the fifth precept. And that, just that one precept completely transforms your life. And in fact, the, one of the interesting things for me is that I realized that when I stopped breaking that precept, I stopped breaking the other ones, by and large. Because it was when I was loaded that I tended to harm people, to lie, to cheat and steal, and to you know, pursue my own ends in, in other, all kinds of ways. So that's kind of a, a very simple framework for how we can look at this step. But um, when we say turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, then if we're going to explore the meaning of God through the Dharma, then it becomes much more of a story, <laughs> much more complicated. And I will do my best to um, explore that now. And this is an evening when I probably will do more talking than some other evenings because there is so much material here that I kind of want to cover. And, and um, so, so that's that. I hope to have some time for some questions. So I'll begin by saying that um, when I discovered Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu, who was a great... Thai master of the 20th century, died not too long ago, died certainly in the last couple decades. Um, when I discovered some of his uh, work when he was talking about Christianity and Buddhism, it really opened up my understanding of God from a, from a Buddhist viewpoint. So I want to read a little bit of what he says about God. As long as people insist that God is a person in the conventional sense of people language, we can say that they will not know the real God, which in turn leads to proselytizing, disagreements, clashes, and conflicts. Self-evident. The intellectuals will increasingly deny this ordinary kind of God, and it will not be very long before people educated in the modern way will have eliminated God from their hearts altogether something we see in our culture to a great extent. God in people language is simply a conventional word which is used when speaking to children. It is also used by adults who, being intellectually immature, feel and think like children. I'm glad he said that, not me. <laughs> they will use the word God in that way until their awareness and wisdom mature enough for them to understand finally the meaning of God according to Dharma language. 
he goes on to say that every religion has something that can be called God. But some religions talk about their God only in terms of Dharma language. Thus it appears that those religions have no God, and so they are classified as non-theistic religions. Buddhism and Jainism are religions of this type. Another group of religions mostly uses easily understandable conventional language when talking about God, and they are classified as theistic religions. Christianity, Hinduism, and Islam are examples of this type. Also mentioned Judaism. Religions of this latter group have very profound things to say about God in terms of Dharma language. They have very profound things to say in Dharma language. But they are hidden under the outer shell and form of these religions. The classification of religions into two groups, non-theistic and theistic, is a superficial classification that does not touch the real essence or meaning of religion. We continue to do so, however, because most people are only able to understand things superficially and thus are unable to penetrate to the heart of religion. Consequently, many of them come to despise religion more and more, especially what is called God. Finally, some declare that they have no religion and are proud to be atheists. And I'm sure some of them are amongst us tonight. I hope so. You know, I just found that very intriguing and um, made me really want to understand more. So he goes on to define this Dharma God as four things, and this is in my first book. Nature itself, the law of nature, the duty of humans according to the law of nature, and the fruits that human beings receive according to the law of nature. Because nature is something that God created. In other words, is the will of God. And he goes on then to say that really the heart of this, even this four elements of definition, is the law of nature, which is another, which is a synonym for the word dharma. So now we've kind of cycled around, and um, there's some word for that when you define a word by using itself. So. I would say that so far I've accomplished nothing in terms of defining God. So now I will attempt to actually unpack this idea. So if we talk about the Dharma as God, the implication, first of all, is that the Dharma, that within the Dharma there are elements which have power, which are, can be viewed as higher powers which we can turn our will and our lives over to. That is to say, we can seek to live in harmony with them or carry out their, uh, we'll say, will, but since they aren't beings, they don't exactly have a will, but to be in harmony with them is, is kind of my favorite way of thinking of this. So, some of the aspects of Dharma that I consider to be higher powers. First of all is the law of karma. And this is pretty evident that, the, that karma itself, that the law of karma, the law of cause and effect, is a power greater than me. If I take an action, there will be a result. I can't change that reality. I can't take an action and have, you know, I can't drive west and wind up east. You know, if I point my car towards New York, I'm not going to arrive in San Diego. 
that's just cause and effect. So I think we can all, if we can agree on that, that would be helpful for my argument. What's the, what do the lawyers say with that one? That's a... So it, it, this is, uh, and, and so living in harmony with the precepts is living in, in harmony with karma. Um, so I have little definitions of, of these different little higher powers. So I'm going to read this. This comes from my new book. The higher power of karma brings results from actions based on the moral fabric of the universe. It is the force behind addiction, recovery, and spiritual growth. We use this power to transform ourselves and our world through intentional thoughts, words, and actions. So in other words, karma can work for us or against us. If we work in harmony with it, we can move into recovery and grow spiritually. If we work against it, if we try to you know, get ours, or if we're selfish or just seeking our own pleasure, we wind up addicted you know, because we're repeating that action. That's, I think that's somewhat evident. So I'll talk about some other powers. One of the central teachings of Buddhism is the three characteristics of suffering, impermanence, and not-self. Though suffering, we wouldn't typically think of as a higher power, but in fact, it is suffering that has brought us all here tonight, I would argue. That it's the power of suffering that has inspired us all to be here tonight. It's what's inspired us to change, to grow. We didn't come to the meditation center to sit still and because we were happy. You know, we did it because we were in pain. That's why we went into a 12-step program, because we were in pain. So the Buddha puts suffering as this first, the first truth. He wants us to see it. He wants us to see it because it's a powerful motivation to change. If we don't see suffering we are very unlikely to change and to grow. And we are going to stay where we are. So the higher power of suffering is the energy of craving and resistance, those two things, that creates struggles in our world. Its power reveals the ways we need to change and inspires our efforts to overcome internal and external adversity. It evokes the powers of acceptance, compassion, and forgiveness. So, suffering shows us how we need to change and inspires us to change, right? And through that, through our experience of it, we open into acceptance. We become compassionate because we see that this is a shared experience. And we learn forgiveness because we see the inevitability of harm, of harming ourselves, of harming each other, that, that just happens. And the only loving response to that is forgiveness and compassion. So when we turn our will and our lives over to the power of suffering, it means that you're sitting there and your ankle starts to hurt, and instead of running from it, you say, I'm going to open to this and experience to this. What can I learn from this experience? Can I just be with this? This is part of life. If I reject this, I am rejecting life. 
And we listen to that and we say, is there something wrong with my ankle? Do I need to see a doctor? You know, this might be a warning sign. Pain is a warning sign, right? It might be telling us something. So we try to learn from it. We pay attention to suffering. We pay attention to the suffering in others. The suffering in others is, gives us the opportunity to be of service, to express compassion, to, be, to express love. Impermanence, the second of these three characteristics. Tremendously powerful. Everything is constantly changing. We can't hold on to anything because it's constantly changing. That is obviously a power greater than us that we can't control. Good night. If we resist impermanence, we create suffering. If we can open to it, we come into the flow of life. The higher power of impermanence is the energy of change that continuously transforms us and our world. Engaging this power helps us see through the illusion of solidity, showing us the futility of clinging and the frailty of life. This power inspires us to let go and to deeply engage life as it is in each moment. So when we see that everything is not solid, that nothing is solid, it completely changes our view of the world. The cause of suffering is clinging. And when we see that everything is constantly changing, we realize that's just pointless. And it's inspiration to let go. When we see how fragile life is, we appreciate it more in this moment. You know, it's, it's the cliche of the person who has the near-death experience that they value life so much. And people who have cancer will talk about how you know, they're so awake, so alive to life because they are seeing impermanence in such an authentic way, in such a powerful, direct way. Meditation gives us an opportunity to see that for ourselves without having to die physically without having to be sick, to just be present. When we look very closely, we see it, and that arises naturally, that inspiration. Finally, the higher power of no self. Again, sort of a strange way to characterize not-self. I'm using not-self now on the advice of certain authorities, (laughs) Ajahnamaro and uh, others. So not-self, no-self, whatever you want to say. Our belief in a solid identity or, an, or some central um, person who exists as a solid thing creates suffering for us. When we see through that, we move into the flow of life much more naturally. If each of us has multiple personalities, <laughs> identities, when you show up at work, you have one identity. When you come home with your family, 
or your friends, you have another identity. When you come to the meditation center, another identity. The 12-step meeting, another identity. We, we have all these different sides of ourselves. If I go home and act like a Dharma teacher, you know, it doesn't go well. <laughs> it's just not appreciated. But we do that, don't we? We fall into these roles, you know, and we, you know, well, I'm an authority, you know, or, or I don't know much, you know, or whatever, you know, whoever we think we are in different situations, well, you know, all of that, all of those can exist. You can be an authority and you can not know much. It's fine to move between those different things. If we cling to one, we just create conflict. So, the higher power of no-self gives fluidity and flexibility to identity, allowing for the possibility of transformation. If you were, if you had a solid identity, you wouldn't be able to grow. You wouldn't be able to change. So you'd be stuck, I don't know where you'd be, but probably not good, right? Engaging this power helps us see through the illusion of separateness and the false identity of ego. So when we see that there isn't this sort of a solid self, we all realize that well, nobody else is solid either, that you know, there, we aren't these separate identities, we're just these kind of energy centers. It breaks our habit, seeing this higher power, breaks our habit of self-centeredness and guides us towards generosity, service, and compassion. So naturally, when we see that, oh, there's no, like, Kevin to, you know, build a world around, we, and we realize we're connected with others, that there's this fluidity and interconnection, we just naturally want to be of service and to open up. This is just the natural response to that realization. And so this operates, when we, this is a, a, a power, I would say, mostly in terms of our relationship to it. So there's different ways in which we can look at these higher powers. Um, like the law of karma is kind of something that just operates and you're either with it or you're against it. The higher power of not-self um, ah, it's in my book. It's, you know, some of these ideas get very hard for me to even grasp, uh, you know, after whatever, six o'clock, whatever time it is now, it's too late. <laughs> Let me talk about some of the other higher powers. So I, I define each of the elements of the Eightfold Path as powers. But clearly, the mindfulness is the most obvious higher power. Um, when we simply pay attention to something, our experience is transformed. When you pay attention to your body, when you pay attention to your thoughts, when you notice, when you see things clearly, that whole experience is transforming. When we start to pay attention to the present moment, that's where wisdom arises. I like to use the example of visiting someone in a hospital. 
you know, if you're just a lay person and you go to the hospital and you visit someone, you aren't helping them medically, but your presence, by being present for them, is healing. And the same is true for ourselves. When we are present for ourselves, for our own experience, for our own bodies, our own minds, our own hearts, there's a healing, a natural healing that happens with that presence. The higher power of mindfulness is the power of attention and non-reactivity. It opens us to wisdom and insight through clear seeing. Mindfulness is the foundation of all change as it reveals the truth of the way things are, internally and externally. So without mindfulness, there's really no opportunity for change. If we aren't mindful, we won't see suffering. If we aren't mindful, we won't see impermanence. If we aren't mindful, we won't see the fluidity of ego, of personality. So it all depends on being present. It's in many ways the starting point. But as I said before, mindfulness is also supported by many other things. Intention, the power of intention, vital. Intention gives us direction. It gives us resolve. It gives us clarity and focus. You know, for me, I practiced mindfulness meditation for years before I got sober, but I wasn't seeing my addiction, you know, because I didn't have right view, another aspect of the Eightfold Path. You know, right view is seeing the Four Noble Truths. It's seeing the cause of suffering and seeing suffering in the cause of suffering and the way that suffering ends. And it's really, it's, it's getting that broad view. Um, without that, there, we don't see what's going on. To even, we don't see the broader view of it. You can be mindful moment to moment and miss the bigger picture. And then right intention was seeing, oh, you know, I really want to be somebody who has a clear mind, clear heart. So you can see that the Dharma is tremendously powerful. And turning our will and our lives over to this is about connecting with each of these elements. So being open to suffering, being aware of impermanence, Cultivating mindfulness. This is turning your will and your life over. Because our natural inclination is to not be mindful. It's to, it's to space out. That's the kind of natural... Uh, human minds tend to move to the future and the past, trying to kind of figure things out, protect ourselves. It's kind of a survival mechanism. And it, just be reactive, instinctive, impulsive. So it's, it's against our natures, as Noah Levine says, against the stream to be mindful or to open to suffering, to open to your pain, to open to impermanence. Everything's changing. We don't want to look at that. Um, all of this takes tremendous commitment, actually much harder than saying, God, I tr- you know, it's in your hands. Now I don't have to worry about it. I'm just going to trust you and it'll be fine. I, I don't think... Anybody who's sincere in the spiritual path only does that. You know, we people who do that are, and are sincere 
are also trying to live in harmony with what they think is God's will, which at least would mean following precepts. But certainly, you know, part of God's will is everybody dies. So when someone dies, we accept God's will. And, you know, that's, and from a Buddhist viewpoint, God's will is imp- everything is impermanent, right? And so I accept that. From some other viewpoint, it might be, you know, God, God decided it was that person's time or whatever. So uh, turning it over is far from being a passive act, which it can sort of sound like, oh, I'm just turning it over to God, is actually a tremendously active thing to do. It requires tremendous commitment, tremendous effort. Um, the step I talk about a lot in One Breath at a Time, or at least start out by talking about that it's, the step is, first of all, about making a commitment, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over is, is a commitment to ourselves. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, it's a lot. And as I said, you know, this is what I'm just finished writing a book about. So um, I'm full up with all this stuff. And, and even having written the book, uh, it's... Uh, still not easy to um, there's still layers of it that I that took me some time to figure out how to express and that uh, I'm looking forward to having a copy in my hand that I can refer to uh, at times um, so I'm sorry that uh, there isn't time for a lot of questions now uh, or really any questions <laughs> But um, uh, I hope you will, you know, perhaps uh, if you have questions, maybe, you know, write some down during the week or write them down now. And maybe there's one question. Is there homework? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay, first of all, um, I want you to meditate every day. Um, and if you're part of a 12-step program, go to a meeting, at least one. If you are um, acknowledging that you have a, some form of addiction and you're not going to a meeting, I would recommend that you check one out this week or maybe a couple to see if you can find a good one. Um, And I guess the question I would ask uh, for homework would be what is it difficult for you to turn over, to explore that, and see if um, you can find what would make that possible for you to turn over. What, what's really hard for you to let go of or to turn over? Okay? Is that adequate homework? Oh, right. That's right. Next week, step four. Sure. Step four, I got that right here. <laughs> I got a lot of homework for step four. But let's, let's say, what I would say is, um, to watch desire and aversion this week. Watch it 
particularly in your meditation practice, and watch it as it arises in your day, how desire and aversion drive you. That's a good inventory to take, the desire and aversion inventory. Okay? Those are two of the five hindrances. So uh, let's just sit for a moment just to close. And just to breathe, I know there's a lot of ideas. I hope that some of them went to the heart rather than the head. And some may not harmonize for you. Some may. May all beings benefit from our work together. Realizing that I am connected and related to all other beings. I hope and I offer that my effort and my inner work may be of benefit to all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you very much.